0: Alright, so history could be considered a little dusty in some circles, but Vanessa Van Cleef has another approach to teaching social studies that might make some children cry. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. fully claimed Vanessa as my work wife at school. Our classrooms are right beside each other, we teach the same grade 8 students, and our curriculums often overlap. We are both country girls growing up very close to the same small town and love a good run in our local ravine. I asked Vanessa on the show today not because we have so much in common, but because Vanessa teaches social studies in a way that makes her students feel something. Whether she's leading students through a simulation, engaging them in a rich role play, or taking on a character to highlight a big idea, Vanessa is a teacher who definitely understands how to make learning sticky. After listening to this chat I had with my friend, I'm confident that you will have the inspiration you need to switch things up in your content area or just flat out steal one of her awesome ideas. Okay, folks, here is my conversation with a very thoughtful, Vanessa Van Cleef. Vanessa Van Cleef, uh-huh. thank you so much for joining us today in the podcast, it's great to have you over here.
1: I'm excited to be here.
0: Uh, why don't we start just by telling everyone who you are, uh, what do you teach, um, where you work, and what are some things that you enjoy about life?
1: I am a teacher at the Bishop Strawn School and have been for a very long time. I teach in the middle school right now, I was in the senior school for many years and now I teach all grade 8 social studies all the time. Uh, Things that I enjoy about life, at my job I enjoy coaching and working with service learning and student leadership. Outside of my job I love hanging out with my two kids and my husband and spending time at our cottage
0: sweating, running and sweating in the ravine. I <laughs> often see you in Cedar Vale ravine and we're passing each other and... I'm Not enough.
1: Fast. You don't see me in there enough. <laughs> I don't
0: see myself in there enough to be honest. Uh, how did you come to be a teacher? How did you find yourself in this uh, profession?
1: I don't remember a time when I wasn't going to be a teacher. I am that quintessentially cliched kid who taught my stuffed animals yes. <laughs> from the beginning. I played school and I really liked school, school worked for me and my learning style and I just always knew I was going to be a teacher. There was a time in high school where I thought, oh no, what if I'm not Good at being a teacher because I don't have a backup <laughs> plan, but so far so good.
0: Yeah, you've been you've been doing a great job with mm. so far. <laughs> um, we're on the same teaching team this year, and I've loved having you as I call you my work wife because our classrooms <laughs> are close to each other. Like our doors are right beside each other, mm-hmm. and there are other two people in our core team. Their classrooms are not as close, so you're my work wife at school. Mm-hmm. Uh, And I have a, I don't think I've ever told you this, but I was reading through my course evaluations this year from all my students, and they were saying lovely things, and la-la-la, you're great, da-da-da-da. But a number of students, I'd say like four, five-ish, they said uh, the question, like, what could be even better about this course? They said, we'd really like it, Ms. Kirsch, if you could include more experiential learning activities like Miss Van Cleef does. Oh, wow. I know. And I was just completely, I'm like, yeah, Miss Van Cleef does a really great job with this. And uh, I'll let you talk about some of the really cool things you do with your grade eights through social studies. Um, but have you always included this in your teaching, being able to include really cool simulations and rich role plays and fun surprise experiences in your classroom.
1: Not as much as I do now. I'll be honest. Uh, as I said, I started in the senior school, and so I worked with older students and we did some simulations. Uh, I probably did a lot more role play and things like that, um, which I think is experiential in its own mm-hmm. way and and can be really powerful. I added to my repertoire, if you will, as time has gone by, and I think, Underlying, though, all the time, I really thought that history can be, has a um, reputation for being a little bit dry and boring, and so I thought it was really important to try to bring it alive for kids Mm -hmm. and for students to think about, well, what did this really feel like? What did it really mean for people? Why did people make the choices? I don't put, let me rephrase that. I think the what of history is really important. I think the how and the why are probably more important. Mm. So, and as I will say on curriculum night (laughs) every year, the details will fall away. So I want people to understand what are the big picture ideas? Why do people make the choices that they do? What are the patterns that we see in history? um, How do people make positive change in different time periods? How do people make mistakes? Why do people make mistakes and how do we return from that if we can Um, and then I place a lot of emphasis on skills too because Mm -hmm. again the details fall away as I always say on curriculum night I would love for your daughter to come up to me 10 years from now and say I'm still thinking about Louis Riel was he a hero was he a villain it's not going to happen (laughs) so if they have a fleeting knowledge of who he is great but I want them to be thinking about the overarching big questions of history uh, and understand so you need to have the content to back that up, but when you really get into those questions, you need to experience and live it and try to put yourself in those shoes, if you can, um, to try to understand it better and, and why people do the things that they do.
0: Yeah, and then the novelty of some of the experiences that you create actually force them to think and feel in a different way than reading a textbook or listening to a teacher talk about Louis Real could. Like, you actually are putting your students into experiences where they have to feel something
1: that's the idea so something like the blanket exercise which is not something I created by any means probably a lot of people are familiar with it it's becoming more and more widespread um, developed by an organization called Kairos it's really powerful and I've had students say to me after the fact I've read Red Wolf or I've learned about residential schools or I've you know I have seen this video or whatever it may be, I didn't f- really understand or feel it until today. Tell and us what to,
0: that experience is. i started to interrupt you, but what is the blanket activity?
1: In short, the idea is that the room is covered in a number of blankets. Uh, there are two adult members in the room. Um, I am one. I play the role of the narrator, and it's totally scripted. Um, And then there is another adult, one of my wonderful colleagues, Winfred Hunsberger, who plays the role of the European and has done it many times for many years now. And the students are all in role as uh, Indigenous peoples. And it goes over time from first contact between Europeans and the Indigenous peoples of of North America, Canada in particular. Um, And there are... Mm -hmm things that happen along the way so different historical points along the way and essentially what happens over time is that the blankets get folded up and many of them removed and so at the beginning we talk about the fact that the indigenous peoples had all of the space to move around and to live in a way that made sense for them and their culture and by the end of the exercise they're usually about Uh, you know if we start with a class of 20 there will probably be about four students left with the rest of the population having uh, passed away for a number of reasons that are explained along the way. Uh, And those students instead of being on a full room full of blankets will be on two or three small blankets folded up indicating that they are on reserves and um, limited in the space that they can be. And it's a powerful visual Mm -hmm. experience to say, oh my goodness, we had all this space. Um, And it's also a powerful experience too to see the numbers decline in a rapid fashion. and there's uh, some fabulous questions that come out of that. And when we talk about, well, why, you know, often students will say, why didn't they stop things? Why didn't they mm. stand up? And, and I will say to them, why didn't you? Well, you're a teacher, you're an authority figure. Uh, you, we were following, the, you know, we were doing, we had no idea what was about to come. And so that has tremendous value for them to start understanding what happened. Uh, and it's a great jumping off point for a look at Indigenous issues and residential schools and the treaties and the Indian Act and things like that that happen in the course that I teach.
0: Yeah, where do you place that in your class? Like, would you do an activity like that at the beginning of exploring this? At the end, would you do it in the middle when they have a little bit more background knowledge? Like, how do you decide where to place those experiences?
1: So for that experience, I use it as the begin at the beginning as mm-hmm. a provocation. And then we can harken back to that a lot of time as we're going along. I do another role play that you're probably quite familiar with, because (laughs) you probably hear it through the wall, Um, and I use that as an evaluation. So the two big ideas in my course are around development and perspective, and so when we're looking at the the development of the Canadian West, uh, the final evaluation for that piece is a roundtable discussion, and for that I had the students choose roles, uh, anything from a Blackfoot or a Cree or a Métis man or woman, um, to a a Chinese railway worker, to the head of the CPR, to a settler in the West, to a politician, with the idea that there's a varied... Perspectives, And then I play the role of a historian who's writing a textbook and trying to determine whether we remember this development of this time in this time period as positive or negative. Mm. So that sums up the unit, and they have to draw on their knowledge to, A, develop a character. They're only given a role, so they have to develop a historically accurate character, and then they have to make an argument that makes sense from their char- character's perspective. Um, and it's... A really powerful way for them to, for some students, to put themselves in a role that is flies in the face of what they believe. So, you know, a student who chooses to be an Indian agent who is enforcing the Indian Act and living on a reserve, uh, that's really hard for some students, but it at the same time helps them understand, hopefully, how some people were seeing the world and understanding that there's takes all perspectives to, to see the whole picture.
0: I'm thinking about the sensitivity of people taking on uh, oppressed identities of people. Do you ever have any students who perhaps are not doing very thorough research and lean in towards stereotypes?
1: Yes, and so I've changed that one of the first things I did uh, I shouldn't say one of the first things, but one of the things that I've done um, to change that discussion, that roundtable discussion, was I used to have people come dressed up because I thought well if you're going to get into role you need Mm -hmm. to not be in your BSS uniform and there were a lot of stereotypical choices in dress Um, and so we have quite a conversation leading into that I don't have them do that anymore they are allowed to bring one item that is a signature item which takes away from that trap possible trap we have a lot of conversation about potential stereotypes. I do another uh, simulation later on in the year, looking at the geography side of the social studies curriculum, and it's one that was developed by uh, one of my former colleagues, Wendy Beck, and she, she called it the game of 100, I call it the game of 20, because I now do it <laughs> instead of with the entire class, I do it with a, one entire grade, do it with just a class. And the idea is that, unbeknownst to the students, they are assigned to different parts of the classroom. Well, they, sorry, they know they're being assigned to different parts of the classroom, they don't know what those places are. Uh, and in those environments, they are given different resources, so in one part of the classroom, the students are, there's a lot of them, it's usually about half the class, Um, they don't have any chairs to sit on they are given some snacks and they're very very limited they're given an opportunity to write down their frustrations and then they find out that I can't read most of them because it's written in a different language whereas in another part of the classroom there's one student sitting on a really comfortable chair with an extra chair for her feet and she's given a big bag of chips all to herself and a magazine to read etc and (laughs) I can tell you the Feelings are strong uh, in terms of how the students are experiencing this and the injustice of it all. And what they learn later on is that the it's divide the the classroom has been divided up into different continents and the resources resources they are given are based on the average resource in that area. Again, there's a lot of sensitivity to that, and there's a lot of possibility of leaning to stereotypes and so I said to the students this year in particular I really delved into that and I will say to them at the end because debrief is so important in these you can't just do an experience like this and say Mm. okay great off to your next class so debriefing and I said you know I almost didn't do the simulation why do you think that is and so really unpacking that and then getting into that idea of the potential stereotypes that come from this the idea of the danger of a single story so i showed them a little bit of that fantastic ted talk talking about that concern and um you have to be really really careful and i have had a couple of students say you know i'm not sure that we should do it the Mm -hmm. vast majority said we should but a few said i'm afraid that people might not hear the message well enough in the debrief and take a stereotype or generalization from this that you don't intend it so you have to be really careful
0: you have to be really careful (laughs) careful and sensitive to who's in the room because Mm -hmm. I think it's one thing to talk about power and privilege of the West when all of your students are from that dominant culture you can say like wow this is not fair But it has a very different tone when you're like, I know that you, student, over here, actually comes from this part of the world that I'm talking about as being oppressed. And what are the implications of a white teacher saying, hey, let's look at how oppressed your part of the world is. Like Mm -hmm. That can have some really big ramifications in terms of reinforcing that single story.
1: And I'm very lucky in that our grade seven team does a lot of work around that and so I'm fortunate that I can build on their work Um, it's I'm nervous when I do some of these Um,
0: part of me feels like that's good though like and and I think you have the skill set to be able to effectively debrief that or to you know when you maybe see some of those single stories come up in students writing after or their reflections you could challenge them one on -one mm -hmm. one with that um I think that if we're not uncomfortable sometimes by some of the things that we're exposing students to we're probably too safe
1: and I like to think that I'm honest in my discomfort and my questions about what I do yeah and and I for that reason I'd like to think that the students are honest in their feedback to me about mm-hmm. what works and what I need to be careful about and how I could make it better and I ask for a lot of feedback in the moment of doing the piece but Throughout the year as well, and more formal mm-hmm. feedback loops.
0: Tell me about when you turn the classroom into a factory, because <laughs> I believe Vanessa, you've made children cry in that one. Only once. <laughs> uh,
1: so that's actually one that I started doing years ago when I was teaching American history, and uh, and then I and it looped back around because the same concept of industrialization happened in Canadian history. So I started to do it with much younger students. Uh, the The basic idea is that I want the students to understand why unions came to be, how the working class and the urban poor were being treated, how their life was changing around the turn of the century. So it starts with, it depends what time of year, it used to be the Valentine's Factory in American history because it happened generally back in February, but the way my course now happens, it's usually around springtime. So... I start the class by saying, oh, we've been working so hard on X, whatever we've been doing, and I need to just catch up with a few people about things, so why don't you take a couple minutes right now? And I hand them a little piece of paper, and I said, just make a happy spring card for someone. You know, the sun is shining, or in this case, this year it was still snowing, I think. I'm like, we've got to will the spring gods to come. And so I said, all I ask is that you put a flower on it, because I would just love to see some flowers in our world. So they make a little spring car. Who can I make it for? I'm like, you can make it for your dog. You can make it for your teacher. You can make it for the barista at Starbucks. Doesn't matter to me. Just (laughs) spread the spring love. And so they have a great time and take about 10 minutes. And they're chatting and they're borrowing markers. And they're putting their own little flair on it. And then (laughs) I because they're all engaged in, in making spring cards, I uh, sort of turn around and take a couple of deep breaths because <laughs> this is the one that I have the most trouble with. I'm not that great an actor. And uh, then I turn around with a really stern voice and I tell them that we can't just spend all our time making spring cards. This is ridiculous and we've got to get some work done. And I they're usually sitting in groups, uh, table groups. And so... As you well know Celeste I need to do this in your room because I need to have individual desks I make up some elaborate story as to why that is in my room I have tables so I can't do it so I tell them to get into rows like we're writing a test and you know chair table chair table and uh, and so they're just kind of freaking out as to are we having a test no we're not having a test but we need to get some work done and and so I turn out the lights I close the blinds it's dark and I'm essentially yelling at them to move faster and get themselves set up and the only thing they can have on their desk is a writing utensil and Some kid usually puts a water bottle up there and They get in trouble and then um, and then I tell welcome them to the flower factory and I tell them that the first person in the row puts um, Draws the middle of the flower and the second person in the row draws three petals on the left and that the third person in the row draws three petals on the right and the fourth person draws a stem, and then I slap a large pile of little pieces of paper at the beginning of each row, and tell them to go. And then I kind of yell at them to go faster. And uh, generally, somebody laughs, and uh, I yell at them, and and <laughs> uh, generally somebody does something, and I fire them and, <laughs> and, then, and remove them from the activity, and then. Uh, Anyway, I can usually keep that up for about three minutes as they're furiously doing this assembly line of making flowers, and, uh, and then I stop, and they're a little leery because they're not sure if they should believe me, and I'm like, no, no, stop, it's okay, and I, I smile at them again and turn the lights back on, and, uh, and then we talk about what their experience was in the first environment where they could do things themselves, and they knew what the product was start to finish, and they were proud of the final product, and it was unique and personalized, and they cared about it. And then we talked about the assembly line experience, um, and sometimes the fear that came along uh, with being fired. The disassociation with the product they really didn't care what it looked like they just had their one little piece the quality goes down and we do look at the end result we have a lot of fun actually looking at the end result uh, because they're horrific (laughs) 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 Um, but we talk about the fact that there we've made a lot in a really short period of time so there was incentive to do that Um, and then we talked about what people could do and how if I continue to have them do that we talked about working conditions it's dark it's, uh, you know, as I always say to them, if I could, I'd blast heat in here and smoke and toxic fumes. But um, so they get the idea, and then we talk about, well, what would this lead to? And they get the idea of strikes and unions and uh, why students or why students why workers might have responded in that way, but why they might not have because they were fearful about losing their job. And and so we talk about what the labor movement was like in the time frame. Um, With all of these simulations, we then uh, make a pledge to not talk to the other grade eights until Mm, (laughs) everyone, or if any, younger siblings that might be in my class in the future. Because with a lot of these, it's, as you alluded to earlier, it's the surprise element. If they know what they're coming into, it doesn't have the same effect. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So with some of these, they they need that uh, surprise.
0: So I'm wondering if I were if I were a teacher that was doing a lot more traditional instruction in my classroom, I could just tell them that the industrial revolution created poor quality Mm -hmm. and that might take four minutes (laughs) and a simulation like that probably takes the whole class, like in terms of setup, changing the tables around the debrief, all the things involved. What is the advantage to a, classroom, not Mm -hmm. just the teacher, but also the students, because that's who we're there for. What's the advantage for a classroom of doing something that takes, I would say, like 10 times as long, Mm -hmm. um, rather than just imparting that information to somebody?
1: In short, they get it. They live it. And I don't know how to say it any differently. They they start to understand history they Mm. don't learn about history they do history
0: whoa I like how you said that it's not just knowing history it's understanding history Mm
1: -hmm. and uh, it sticks with them so I'm fairly confident in fact I know some students will come back 10 years later, 15 years later, and say, do you remember the flower factory, Uh, or things like that. And I know for my colleagues who are in the senior school, when they start talking about indigenous issues, the students will bring up the blanket exercise. And so if I told them about it, or if they read it in a textbook, they might remember it. Mm -hmm. But when you have that visceral, personal experience where you can empathize, that just becomes so much more powerful than reading about something when you're actually living it as much as you can in a classroom in 2018.
0: It makes the learning stickier. So what I'm hearing you say is that you might be able to cover a topic Mm -hmm. or check something off of your list of things that I have to do with my children this year, but the way that you are teaching it through these experiences, they actually remember it and they actually learn it
1: and every year I think the roundtable discussion in particular is it's many classes to set it up in terms of what the students are doing Mm -hmm. they there's and I just think and then you know inevitably some students away and how do you you can't recreate that experience and that is a challenge you know students are away you can't recreate that experience and so they've missed out on that and every year I think oh I just have a history test and just be done with it and mm-hmm. it's over in one class and I mark it quickly and I But then every year the students say afterwards, their feedback is so powerful about what they get out of it and their reflections on it afterwards, and them hearkening back later in the year about the kinds of things that they learned, mm-hmm. It's worth it to take that time. And so the reality is, I mean, You're very kind in saying they're always doing these experiential things. They're not. (laughs) They're not because they do take a lot of time. So you have to choose your moments. Uh, And I would imagine that if I did one every single class, they would lose the novelty factor as well. Totally. That is like so
0: important. It has to be novel for it to stand out for them.
1: Exactly. So I, you know, I try to do something like that once a month. Once every six weeks basically one thing per small mini unit Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other times I'm still trying to think about them it's not just chalk and talk and read the textbook they don't even have a textbook Um, the rest of the time so there's still I'm wanting them to think very carefully about okay if you're Sir John A. McDonald and this is happening in the Red River resistance how would you respond what would you do if it's Confederation let's do a role play to figure out and so they can still, the idea is they still get into the mode of what were people thinking and why were they making the choices that they were. And But it's always grounded in the information. We still need the, the evidence to back things up. So I don't want you to just talk in general terms about this is how people were feeling. No, I still need <laughs> the four things I always hear me talk about, evidence and analysis or the what and the yeah. so what. I still need that to know that if this isn't just you thinking in 2018 this is what was happening i need you to ground it in in actual historical evidence Mm.
0: what advice do you have for somebody who has been teaching in more of a traditional style and is inspired wants to maybe include one simulation or one activity in their curriculum but they do not know where to start what advice or where do you think somebody in that position should look
1: (laughs) Steal, <laughs> and I, I say that in jest in some ways, but I'm not sure that any of the activities that I described to you—well, the blanket exercise for certain—but um, I've modified things mm-hmm. that I've found that I've, you know, I, I've seen things out there and thought, oh, what could I do with that? Is there a way that I could change that? And those kinds of ideas. So look for ideas that are already out there mm-hmm. and make it work for you. Uh, The second piece is to just try it once. Mm -hmm. You cannot do this. As I said earlier, you can't do this every single class. The time to set some of these things up is hours and hours often, just even getting the resources or getting the space and those kinds of things. Um, So do it once. Mm -hmm. Set your goal small. See if it works for you. Other things that I would be helpful tips as i mentioned earlier debrief is so critical mm-hmm. uh so even just using the what just happened so why does it matter now what do we do with that the what so what now what mm-hmm. those are really important questions because if you just leave it to the novelty and to the activity then you might lose it so i think thinking about how you set it up carefully and possible in challenges around stereotypes and the things Mm -hmm. that we talked about earlier, and also really important debriefing at the time and probably in several classes after, that you're coming back to that idea so that it's not a one-off, well, that was a really cool activity and now we'll get back to this, Mm -hmm. that it, it needs to loop back through the rest of the unit where you can. So we
0: are wrapping up our conversation with a ticket out the door because Ooh. we are incredible educators that always do tickets out the door <laughs> when we're closing off a class, um, and you cannot prepare for these questions. So they're just a bunch of rapid fire questions okay. to help people get to know you a little better. Are you up for? I'm ready. Ticketing. Okay, here we go. What is your favorite book to read to young people?
1: One of the the book that I always buy when friends of mine have. Babies is Paper Bag Princess. Aww. That is my favorite book. I just love the message that it sends.
0: It's really good. Mm-hmm. What is the best gift you ever received as a teacher?
1: The it's going to sound really cliche, but the the letters and the notes, those are the things I save. Those yeah. are the things that I love. Um as far as it, an actual item, one of my students a couple of years ago painted um a it was like a mason jar and she painted things based on our course oh it was it's beautiful
0: that's so thoughtful yeah. i i want to now guess who that is <laughs> uh what is your favorite place in canada to visit
1: i was fortunate enough to grow up in prince edward county and i love going back there it's quiet and beautiful and my family's there and it's lovely Um, I was also fortunate enough to marry a wonderful man from Sault Ste. Marie, and they have a family cottage on Lake Superior, and it is also quiet and beautiful in its own way, and those are pretty special places I'm lucky enough to get to go to.
0: Those are pretty good. If you weren't a teacher, you would be what?
1: I told you, I don't have a backup (laughs) plan. (laughs) Uh, Oh... I'm quite fascinated by marketing. I don't want to make the advertisements. I'm just fascinated by how people work. And that's probably why I love teaching social studies because I'm just looking at how people work at different times. I, you know, I I love uh, Terry O'Reilly's Under the Influence and podcasts like that. I just love, like, how does it all work? So I would maybe be in some sort of ethnographic research part of a marketing and research firm.
0: Totally. I never would have guessed that. (laughs) I can totally see it now. Uh, What's the first thing you do when you come home at the end of the day?
1: (laughs) I ask my kids how their day was and Mm. spend a little time with them. And then I take my contacts out and put my glasses on because my eyes hurt. (laughs) Uh,
0: What is your favorite school
1: safe snack? Probably some sort of popcorn.
0: Mm, I thought you were going to say pita with a piece of cheese on it (laughs) just
1: because that's my breakfast every day
0: (laughs) and then finally what is the future
1: of learning be open to the new uh, but maintain the things that work that are timeless
0: Mm, well said classic words of wisdom it is such a privilege to get to chat with you about things that I really like about what you do as a teacher Vanessa
1: thank you so much
0: I think we can all agree that it's a really good thing that Vanessa didn't have a backup plan if teaching didn't work out because she is a force and an inspiration to so many people, myself included. If you'd like something you heard on the show, please share this episode with a friend that you think might get something out of the conversation. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep playing. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.